Hey guys, welcome back to The Internet Work. Today we have another Ask a Fellow episode on type 1 diabetes. Um, we're lucky to have Dr. Lisa Alexander here. Um, Lisa, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Allison, for having me. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be here today. Um, so I'm Lisa Alexander. Um, I just finished my endocrine fellowship, actually, uh, at University of Toronto, did my residency here as well. Um, and now I'm working as a clinical associate at St. Mike's. Great. So we're going to start with the case. Uh, so Lisa, if you want to take it away. So this was a case that I saw actually in my uh, first week of service as a staff in July. Um, so we were asked to see uh, this uh, 40-year-old uh, male who uh, has uh, is labeled as a history of type 2 diabetes, which was diagnosed um, at age 38. Um, I'll just note sort of upfront that he had a BMI of around 25. So not, he, he wasn't the sort of, sort of characteristic picture of um, <clears throat> metabolic syndrome that you might expect uh, in someone with type two at this age. Um, his A1C at the time of diagnosis was 11% and he was actually found to be ketone positive at that time. Um, there was a family history of what sounded like type two diabetes. Um, and in terms of his diabetes meds, so he was on canagliflozin for the past four years, which is an SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, he was on a combination of uh, uh, Genuvia or Citagliptin, which is a DPP4 and metformin, and then semaglutide, which is a GLP-1 agonist. And he had been on that for about the last four months. Um, so he came into the emergency department uh, because he had been like quite unwell and vomiting at home for several days. Um, when we took further history from him, he tells us that he had been on a keto diet actually for the past four weeks. And all of his blood work at the time was in keeping uh, with DKA and he had been sort of treated as such. Um, and so the ICU phoned us um, <clears throat> after he had been sort of appropriately treated for his DKA. And their question for us is, what do we do with this patient? Does he need to be started on subcutaneous insulin? Um, was this all sort of SGLT2 inhibitor associated? And basically what, what do we do in terms of his management? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great case. Um, I'm just going to bring us back uh, a little bit just because commonly when we think about individuals with type 1 diabetes, we think about a very young population, um, occasionally a pediatric sort of transitioning into the adult population um, in internal medicine. So um, I was just hoping you could speak to a little bit about that transition mm -hmm. um, and the idea of moving from a pediatric to adult care. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think type 1 diabetes is is unique in the sense that we don't often in internal medicine encounter a lot of uh, patients who have been living with a chronic disease from a really young age, um, you know, at least not necessarily to the extent of um, the sort of day-to-day man -day management as that's required with uh, type 1 diabetes. So I think the things to really keep in mind um, if you're, you know, meeting someone in the hospital setting in particular with type 1 diabetes is where, where they're sort of at in terms of their transition from pediatric to adult care. Um, you know, if you imagine sort of uh, adolescence or young adulthood in general, it's it's really often a time of, you know, experimentation or uh, rebellion. And this certainly includes or doesn't preclude people uh, who are living with type 1 diabetes. Um, so I think, you know, in that context of sort of this time of experimentation or rebellion, combined with the fact that oftentimes they're 
uh, transitioning education-wise, maybe going off to school or college, no longer living at home. Um, and then they're also transitioning their medical care from their pediatric team to their adult team. So you can kind of imagine from their point of view, uh, it's often a time of great upheaval and turmoil um, and life is really changing in a lot of ways for them. So if you think about the fact that these uh, patients have had their, their same sort of physicians and, and group of allied health uh, providers looking after them since they were around, say, age four or five or something like that, the, 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 those people on that team have become an integral part of their their care and their lives. So to you know all of a sudden have to move from that type of team to oftentimes a single uh, endocrinologist as their care provider again just sort of adds to the upheaval that they're experiencing at that time. So you know I think um, you know many of you at this point have probably experienced the fact that that tends to be a high risk time in terms of presentation uh, for to hospital with DKA and an overall time of deterioration of their uh, glycemic control. And this all together is often associated as well with a loss to follow up with their new adult provider. When we're seeing or if we're seeing sort of younger adults or sort of um, individuals who have been diagnosed with type 2, but we're not really sure. How do we make that diagnosis? How do we distinguish what are the different types of, are there different types of diabetes other than type 1 and type 2 that we classically think about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think in some ways it's sort of an underappreciated point. And, and I have to confess that even for myself up until, you know, I was uh, sort of head of de- heading down the pathway of training in endocrinology within internal medicine, I sort of underappreciated um, the sort of the fact that there, you know, it sounds very simplistic, but yes, there are, there are other types of diabetes beyond what we typically experience, meaning beyond type one, type two, or say gestational diabetes. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the there's actually a great um a great section on the Diabetes Canada guidelines uh, for anyone who may be preparing for the exam or just being interested in general um, that has this great table that talks about some of the differentiating features between type 1, type 2, um, and then a, another form of, of diabetes, which you may have heard of called like uh, monogenic diabetes or more commonly referred to as MODI. Um, but I think the main thing, um, you know, for um, within the sort of realm of, of a general internist would be to, to just sort of recognize some of the basic features that make you sort of question the diagnosis, like, oh, am I really dealing with type 2 here? Uh, just as we'll sort of highlight when we get back to the case, like, is this really type 2 or are we dealing with something else? So when you think of type 1, the sort of classic story for someone presenting with type 1 is they tend to be oftentimes a lean individual. So, you know, not the sort of characteristic metabolic syndrome that you may see more with type 2, but more the sort of lean individual, younger age. Uh, They'll often uh, have a higher A1C um, at the time of presentation. So, you know, the typical kind of presentation of a grumbling type 2 is that, you know, they they will, the the, the A1C is sort of slowly going up over time as their insulin resistance builds. Whereas with type 1, if you're having this progressive loss of beta cell function um, and reduced insulin secretion, um, when I I feel like there's sort of a tipping point at which point the pancreas is just not making enough insulin to keep up. And you can have a quite dramatic uh, jump in their uh, hemoglobin A1C around that time. So a really high presenting like A1C at the time of diagnosis, um, oftentimes it makes me think more along the lines of type one if the story is kind of adding up to look that way. 
Um, family history is another thing to keep in mind. So people think of, you know, type one as being an inherited disease, but I think in some ways it, it tends to be kind of the other way around in that oftentimes with type two, there's actually a much stronger history of uh, diabetes within the family, like specifically type two. Um, and then other things that can sometimes help you or tip you off is just um, their uh, geographic or ethnic background. So, you know, certain populations are at higher risk for developing type two, such as their South Asian population um, or indigenous population. So that can sometimes help you to some extent as well. Ultimately, from a diagnosis point of view, the main things that will help are things like ordering uh, their antibodies or measuring a C-peptide level and things like that, if you're sort of unsure which way they're presenting. Um, the other thing is um, there are, uh, I mentioned MODI a little bit earlier, or monogenic diabetes. Again, I think that's pretty much, that's a little bit outside of the scope of what we're probably going to talk about today, but just to sort of be aware of the fact that there are these inherited uh, forms of diabetes that often have a slightly more unusual presentation. Uh, they may just have an abnormal fasting blood glucose um, <clears throat> There tends to be a very sort of strong uh, inherited pattern with these as well. So just to sort of know that those entities exist and that it matters because the treatment is often different. Uh, sometimes they may just get away with uh, treatment with sulfonylurea um, or things like that. So just important to know that that other type is out there. And then uh, the last type, I guess, to be aware about is uh, something called LADA. Um, which stands for latent autoimmune diabetes. Um, it's, it's different from type one in the sense that it tends to be an older age of onset. So oftentimes people will say around the age of 30 or so is the most common uh, time of diagnosis for LADA. And they basically have this sort of progressive loss of, um, of beta cell or pancreatic function and sort of over time, progressively uh, uh, develop the need for uh, requiring insulin. And it's usually at least six months or so from the time of diagnosis, but it can actually be years, uh, years after the fact. There are, the last thing I'll say is there are also people who with type two who are ketosis prone. Uh, these people, there's different names, but some people will call it type one and a half diabetes, but really they are, they are type two, but they are just more prone to developing ketosis. It's a, I guess it's easy when somebody presents clearly as type one as a transition from pediatric to adult care, mm -hmm. um, or you know is a bit older, has clear metabolic syndrome, maybe hypertension, central obesity, um, that that you feel fairly comfortable labeling as type two. Um, for those that are in the middle, like LADA, um, maybe a later onset type one. Um, you mentioned C-peptide and autoantibodies. How does that help you? Mm -hmm. So if they if they have um, uh, low C-peptide levels, so C-peptide is basically a kind of like byproduct, if you will, of like of insulin. Um, so if they have very low C-peptide uh, levels, uh, that can be indicative, especially like postprandially. So you would expect after a meal that someone, you know, in terms of normal physiology, um, if their pancreas is intact, you produce a bunch of insulin after you eat. And then uh, C-peptide, which is a, a sort of byproduct of insulin, those levels should be high as well. So if you're finding that they have quite low levels of C-peptide, that can be indicative of a, a sort of low insulin production, um, which would be more in keeping with a with a type one or a LADA. And then the antibodies as well. So there are a variety of antibodies that can be um, like antibodies basically against uh, beta cells. And those do tend to be positive uh, in, in patients uh, living with type one. But not type two. Not type two. LADA is sort of like along the spectrum, like the same sort of spectrum as type one. It just tends to be later onset uh, than, uh, than type one. And 
just for our listeners, what antibodies should they be looking for or should they be testing for? Because I think this is not something we commonly send just because of the population we treat. But anti-GAD would be the most common one and sometimes anti-insulin antibodies. Anti-insulin antibodies can get a bit muddy because if the patient has already received any doses of insulin, that that in and of itself can cause positive insulin antibodies. Um, so, but anti-GAD would be the most common one. And then if there are any other ones that your hospital is sending, you just have to ask your biochemist. I think briefly what what I wanted to touch on as well is just treatment of type 1 diabetes, um, specifically about, you know, I I think our internal medicine residents um, are pretty good at knowing sort of that they have to have basal, um, there's some bolus dosing that they take with meals, um, but I think something that gets really muddy um, for individuals is what to do with people who are on pumps um, because we're not familiar with them. So maybe you could give us like a 101 on, on yeah. basics, just yep. everything about a pump that a general internist should know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so an insulin pump is basically, um, it is using, so inside the pump, the type of insulin that's in there is a rapid acting insulin. And I think this is sometimes like sort of underappreciated or missed that there's a sort of misconception that it's actually like long acting or basal insulin there. It's not, it's rapid acting insulin. Um, and in terms of the pump itself, so it's basically like this sort of external cassette type device that looks like, I don't know, sort of like a cell phone, but uh, it's more sort of boxy. Um, and that's where the insulin uh, is stored in a, in a vial within this, um, within this cassette type thing. And then it is attached to the patient with tubing. So there's often like a, there's a little plastic tubing. Um, there's different types of pumps. So depending on the type of pump, you may or may not have the tubing. And then there's a small cannula that actually goes under the skin. So that's where the insulin is actually infused. Um, so you have this rapid acting insulin that's essentially being continuously infused under the skin. Um, in terms of the, the, what, like, what's the pump actually doing? So there's a bunch of different things that it's doing. You have your sort of background rate of insulin, or you're creating basically a basal type of insulin with this rapid acting insulin, the pump. So they have this continuous infusion of, uh, insulin going in underneath their skin. And that essentially replicates your basal insulin. So they're always insulinized uh, by their pump. And then um, for a lot of patients, so when they eat, um, just before they eat, they will often count their carbohydrates um, to determine how much of a bolus dose of insulin they need to give themselves. Um, and I just really want to emphasize the fact that carbohydrate counting is actually really, really difficult. Um, so you'll see sometimes patients with uh, struggling to figure out how much carbohydrate they're eating, uh, particularly when they're in hospital and they're eating unfamiliar foods. Um, so just keeping in mind that it's actually really difficult to card count. Um, and so based on how much carbohydrate they're about to, you know, they see their plate of food based on how much carb they think they're going to have, um, then they will decide on a bolus dose of insulin. Um, oftentimes that can be calculated by their pump. So the pump has a lot of uh, different features in terms of helping them to determine how much of a dose they're going to administer. Um, so they enter their carbs, the pump decides, you know, how much insulin they're going to uh, be administered based on their insulin to carb ratio. And then they administer a bolus of insulin that's infused um, over, 
you know, a, a short amount of time. Um, and that's sort of to cover their meal time. So they can bolus basically at any point, either uh, for a meal or if their blood sugar is high and they need to provide a correction dose, they can also do that with their pump. So you're essentially, it's a basal bolus type regimen. You're just giving it in a slightly different way. And when we're thinking about individuals who are on an MDI, um, is it fairly similar to sort of how we think about it for like type two patients who are on an MDI? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the differences um, for someone living with type one compared to type two in terms of their MDIs, I find often like patients um, with type one more often will be carb counting compared to people with type two. Um, so that might be one sort of subtle difference. Uh, they may be more likely to have um, to take insulin at bedtime if they're having a snack. I feel like a lot of patients with type one or type two, sorry, don't necessarily do that. Um, but otherwise, it's 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 typically you know similar. I guess one difference would be we wouldn't use typically like mixed insulin uh, for someone with type 1, uh, which you may do with type 2. And so sort of on the other end, and you touched on this briefly, how do you prefer or is there a preference on how individuals with type 1 monitor their blood glucose when they're mm -hmm. at a hospital? Mm, in hospital. I mean, so in hospital, um, in hospital or out of hospital or out or of both. hospital. Yeah. Okay. So in hospital, I think, um, you know, oftentimes, especially for someone, and I'll talk a bit about like the different types of sensors that we have, but, um, when someone comes into hospital, we oftentimes, even if they have a sensor, ask them to still allow us to do our, um, capillary blood glucose monitoring in part, just because then it's documented in their chart and it can make it a little bit easier for us, um, in terms of our rounding and our insulin adjustment. Um, but anyone who is on a, on a sensor and they do come into hospital, um, each institution has different policies, I think, around um, uh, sensor use within hospital and using, um, say, like an insulin sliding scale based on someone's sensor readings. And I think, again, important to sort of know your own institution uh, and what uh, is and is not sort of allowed within your institution. Um, but in terms of, uh, so that's, I guess the most, the simplest way in hospitals having, having the patient sort of do the nursing led um, point of care testing. Um, in terms of sensors, um, so more in the outpatient setting, we have like two sort of primary sensors that are in use right now. So one is the uh, Freestyle Libre sensor, which is the sensor that um, you, you might see it's like usually stuck on the back of people's arms. It's a small disc. Um, it comes with a little reader and uh, it can be used uh, with some smartphones as well. And basically the patient just has to scan on the back of their arm um, and it will tell them their blood sugar so the other one that we have is more what we would call like a real-time glucose sensor um, called the Dexcom. And with the Dexcom, it's linked usually to a person's uh, phone. And um, it is basically sampling the interstitial fluid every, I don't know, few minutes. And that that information is pushed to their phone. So it's happening in real time. They don't have to scan it with the reader. Um, it's being sent to them in real time. And the advantage of doing that is you can actually have... Um, various alerts and alarms. So the patient can be alerted if their blood sugar is starting to trend down really quickly or trend up really quickly. Um, and they'll actually have, you know, the, the alarm on their, on their device will start going off. Um, so for people who have a history of hypoglycemia, particularly overnight hypoglycemia or hypoglycemia unawareness, um, this has been life-changing for so many people. 
So I just wanted to bring us back to our case. So what did you guys think? What did you do? You have this guy who's in um, ICU. They're transitioning him out of sort of DK protocol. Um, what was your thought process for this gentleman? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the big thing, the the thing that I sort of stepped back at when I looked at this case or, or spoke with this patient, I'm like, you know, it made me question, are we really dealing with type 2 diabetes here or not? Um, because ultimately, your management really hinges on what type of diabetes your patient has. And so the things that were making me think in this case that we weren't just dealing with run-of-the-mill type 2 um, was a couple of things. So his, his age, so, you know, being diagnosed with type 2 at age 38, it's not unusual. Usual. We do certainly, I do have some younger patients um, that I've seen with type two, but the, his whole story just didn't really fit with that, right? He's sort of like, you know, moderate BMI. He didn't have any other features of metabolic syndrome. That part of it just didn't quite make sense to me. Um, the other part that didn't sort of add up was his A1C was 11% at diagnosis, which again, those sort of higher A1Cs at the time of diagnosis really make me question, is this really a type two with a sort of insulin resistance as their primary their primary issue compared to someone who's actually having sort of progressive beta cell failure. Um, He also had positive ketones at the time of presentation, which I mean, you can have ketones for a lot of different reasons, but um, you know, an A1C of 11 with positive ketones, I think I would have been questioning the diagnosis right from the beginning. Um, The other thing to think about in his case was he was on an SGLT2 inhibitor. So, you know, we've all seen now probably many examples of patients with type 2 who develop... who develop uh, uh, DKA essentially uh, on their SGLT2 inhibitor. So that, you know, it's possible that he could be type two and just be ketosis prone on the SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, But again, that you can certainly, you know, in type one being on an SGLT2 inhibitor B, that can very much tip people into DKA as well. Um, So all of those things combined, I think I was just, I was starting to think a little bit more about Lada in his case because he was a little bit older um, and all those other sort of features I mentioned. Um, I did wonder about Lada. So our our plan for him was um, we did actually send him home on on basal insulin. We didn't put him on MDI. Um, We just did a a basal, which that's that's fine. Like that's enough uh, insulin if you are sort of questioning type one or LADA, um, sending to home on just basal is fine. And then we were uh, planning for him to um, meet with his outpatient endocrinologist and get the antibody testing done. Can I also ask you about just some tips you have for managing individuals with type one diabetes when they get admitted to hospital, say they're not in DKA, but they do have type one diabetes. What is the best way for us to manage them uh, to make Mm -hmm. sure that they don't go into DKA under Mm -hmm. a lot? Yeah. I mean, I think the the biggest uh, principle to be aware of, which we've kind of touched on already, is like never stop their basal insulin. Um, You know, I I just recently was involved in a case where we had an in-hospital DKA um, and because basically the patient's basal insulin had been held, um, which in the context, it was a very, you know, the patient had arrested and it was very understandable why that happened. But um, I think that's the the number one principle is just never, never stop their basal insulin or hold their basal. You can reduce the dose of their basal if they're having uh, hypoglycemia, but just don't ever hold their basal insulin because that's if that will precipitate uh, DKA if they go long enough without their basal. Um, I think one thing that's really important as well, as we were kind of talking about a little bit at the beginning Oftentimes, um, you know, patients have been living with type 1 diabetes for many years, decades sometimes. Um, And depending on how 
you know, engaged they are with their diabetes or depending on how well they understand uh, their diabetes, which oftentimes they understand it really well. Um, it can become, um, you know, I've had this conversation with patients many times where it becomes very, um, sort of like upsetting or threatening being in hospital because, you know, a disease that you have spent your whole life controlling, all of a sudden other people are telling you what to do. They're telling you how much insulin to take. Uh, they're not letting you self-administer. Um, they're not letting you uh, carb count. They're giving you fixed doses of insulin. So this can all be really unsettling for people, especially for people who strive to have really uh, tight glycemic control. So I think it's really um, important to try to get a sense from patients of how much like control they would like to have um, over their insulin administration when in hospital. Um, and again, oftentimes institutions will have... Um, guidelines of sorts around uh, patient self-administration of insulin in hospital. But I think whenever possible, it's 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 helpful to um, have patients with type 1 self-administer or at least decide on their dosing while they're in hospital. And with our, our um, ordering systems that we have now, you can often uh, provide some flexibility with your orders in terms of providing a range of insulin dosing and the patient can decide on how much they'll take. Um, so I think having as much sort of patient involvement as possible with respect to dosing is really helpful. You know, I think oftentimes whenever possible, especially for someone with type one, you can just go ask them, like if you were at home and they have their meal tray in front of them. So if you were at home and your blood sugar was 18 and you were about to eat this meal, how much insulin would you take for that? And they'll oftentimes be able to tell you. Um, so I think the message is just sort of as much sort of shared decision-making as possible and as much uh, sort of self control and determination of their dosing while in hospital as as possible and as appropriate for a given a given patient you know if they have reduced LOC or problems with their memory or something like that then obviously that's not the best scenario to do that but outside of you know uh, those types of issues I think it's it's often helpful to to involve them and in those cases where they may not be able to self-administer um, do you transition and they're on a pump, like, mm -hmm. do you transition them from a pump to an MDI and how do you mm -hmm. do that? Um, so in terms of doing that, I think you would, you know, you would want to involve endocrinology for sure if you're doing that, but, um, it's basically on the pump, you can access their pump and look at their pump settings and figure out what, um, there's sort of two things you need to know. One is their total daily dose of insulin from their pump, which is sort of the same as what their total daily dose would be if they were on MDI. So you want to know what their total daily dose is and then how much their basal insulin is. So, you know, uh, the basal insulin in a pump is ad administered in like units per hour. So they might be on like 0.3 units per hour or something like that. So you basically just have to kind of do the math. I mean, okay, if they're on basal rate is on average, like it, it it's set to different times a day. So from like midnight to 4 a.m., they might be 0.3 units per hour. And then from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m., they might be 0.4. So um, you have to add up that sort of total daily uh, basal. And then we usually don't necessarily like one-to-one -one convert that. If you're giving them an injection of say Lantus, you might <clears throat> just to be on the safe side, like give them 80% of their dose um, as opposed to the full 100% just to make sure um, that, uh, that you're being sort of conservative, but that's basically how you do it. You just have to grab the settings off their pump um, and do a bit of math <laughs> and uh, then you can convert them to MDI. And while they're in hospital, you know, when we, we talk about type 2 diabetes, we always say, you know, aim for safe mm -hmm. uh, rather than hypoglycemic episodes, so a, um, or rather than risk hypoglycemic episodes. So a lot of people, we often, you know, will aim for somewhere between 6 to 10-ish. Mm -hmm. Is that the same for type 1 diabetes as well? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, I sort of uh, follow that principle as well. With every Ask a Fellow episode, we ask the fellow mm-hmm. um, or our clinical associate uh, <laughs> to give us sort of five take-home points that you would want an internal medicine resident or a general internist to know about uh, type 1 diabetes. Okay, so I think uh, take-home point number one, I guess, as we just sort of talked about in hospital um, and around the times of surgery and things like that, is like never hold basal insulin. Uh, super important to always make sure they have basal insulin. Otherwise, you can risk uh, going into to DKA. Point number two would be um, the the kind of importance of uh, patient involvement and sort of self-determination of insulin dosing, if that seems appropriate in hospital, I think can be really, really important. I think the other thing is like, don't miss the diagnosis as we were talking about, you know, there are actually more than just two types of diabetes. And I think it's always worth the exercise of questioning the diagnosis that someone has been labeled with, particularly like in the case that we talked about, you know, if it's not all sort of making sense, then uh, you're never wrong to, to question it because the implications in terms of management um, are, are huge. Point number four is don't be afraid of insulin pumps. Um, You know, feel free to ask the patient questions about their pump. They can often like walk you through it. I've had this uh, happen a number of times now where we've had patients uh, admitted with pumps and they're actually more than happy usually to like have the residents come by and show them (laughs) how their pump works and look at the different settings and and have some explanation from a patient perspective about the pump. So just ask questions. Um, You know, if you're, if you want to know about their settings or how much insulin they're actually taking, like the patient's Patients who are on pump tend to, I mean, it's a generalization, but tend to be like quite well informed about um, about their pumps and all their settings. So uh, feel free to, to ask. Um, and I think the fifth point to emphasize is to keep in mind, especially with our young adult or adolescent population, that, um, you know, these patients, again, oftentimes um, there can be a lot going on uh, in that sort of phase of life for them in terms of a lot of life changes, both with their healthcare providers, um, as well as just their life in general, educational transitions, all sorts of different things going on. So um, with this population, I'd say it's really important to um, sort of have a good understanding of their of their sort of social uh, context and be as sort of understanding and compassionate as possible and making sure they're well connected with their adult endocrinologist who's looking after them. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Internet Work on Type 1 Diabetes. Special thanks to Dr. Lisa Alexander, our endocrinology clinical associate who did this podcast with us. This podcast was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.